Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a master of improv and a producer slash host of several great podcasts, including I Will Write Your Book, Screw It, We're Just Going to Talk About Comics, uh, a Beatles equivalent of that, Screw It, We're Just Going to Talk About the Beatles, and the lamentedly retired Don't Get Me Started, Will Hines is here. Welcome, Will. Greetings. Thank you for having me, George. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror, how you got into it, that sort of thing. I was not a horror fan until like my 30s. You know, I would watch horror movies occasionally, but actually I sort of avoided what I, I thought that every horror movie was extremely gory and that kind of put me off when I was a kid. Uh, of course, that's not true. <laughs> Plenty of horror movies have very little gore, uh, but then I, there are horror movies that are, that, are, that are totally into that, but I avoided all of them. Um, and then I just sort of got more into movies in general in my 30s. I don't even remember why. You know, I started doing improv. That's probably what it was. Just started paying more deliberate attention to art. Right. And um, I started like being one of these, you know, guys who would read a list, you know, like the AFI Institute's list of the 100 best films or something and or the 100 best comedies. And I would sort of scroll through that and see what I'd seen and make a mental note of, oh, I've never even heard of this one. <laughs> and it's the top 10 rated movie ever or whatever. And, um, so you'd see best horror movie lists come out and I would just sort of scan those and they just sounded so intriguing. <laughs> uh, and then once I started paying attention to them, I became a fan because, I mean, what I'm about to say is not always true, but a lot of times a horror movie is short, sort of like economical, like it's often very simple yeah, and spare, like not a lot of moving parts and just creepy. And so it feels almost very artful that it's like, you know, a movie like Halloween, uh, you know, and I'm I'm picking one of the one of the most revered and best ones. It feels so simple. You know, the whole most of it happens in this one neighborhood. All of these houses in view of each other. One bad guy. There's maybe five teenagers who are being pursued. So it's like simple in yeah, a way. Absolutely. And that's um and it's so impressive. You know, as opposed to something like like a fantasy drama, which I also am a fan of, but something like Game of Thrones where there's like part of the fun is that there's a million moving parts and there's like this huge density of information, eh, which, hey, I'm down for that too. But the fun of a horror movie is that it is often this just like bleak, spare, arctic landscape, metaphorically speaking, of just a few creepy elements. It's very haunting. Uh, Yeah, I I think that that's a a really insightful point. I think that uh, you're totally right in that a lot of the joy of uh, something, you know, like when I'm reading Lord of the Rings, part of what I like about it is being like, oh, like I have to learn the family lineage of Aragorn yeah. and everything. But with this, right, it's like, right. I am not even really going to bother to learn these names. <laughs> like, I'm just going to yeah, You're often not killer. told the backstory. You're yeah. often starting in the middle of a weird situation that's never explained. Yeah. That's part of the fun. And it ends abruptly at some <laughs> point. Often horror movies have crazily fast endings where it's like, what? It's over now? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And you're left wondering what the what happened in a, in a in a great way. Right. Then the sequel comes along and ruins it. <laughs> Unfortunately true more often than not. Yeah, a lot of times that happens, yeah. One thing I always like to ask comedians who come on the show is about their thoughts on horror comedies. And if it's something yeah. you're into or if you find yourself feeling like you're at work and you want to just kind of escape that into Oh no, no, no. I, I, first of all, I'm not I'm not a successful enough comedian to <laughs> Comedy is not ruined for me because I, I, I'm not funny enough to feel like I'm overdoing it. 
uh, nor am I immersed in comedy so much that I hate it. No, I, I love a horror comedy. There, I think Stephen King, many people have made this observation, but I remember Stephen King talked about how horror and comedy are very close. Mm-hmm. And if you do horror wrong, it's funny. But I guess also you can deliberately try to get both. Because, you know, they both require elements of surprise and misdirect yeah. and dealing with your expectations. Right, stringing um, people along until you can finally get that zig when you're supposed to it. zag or something yeah so and suspense and timing and but yeah uh, american werewolf in london comes to mind Ooh, as like an absolute one. you know totally fantastic movie that functions there's really truly funny parts of it and truly terrifying parts of it yeah yeah absolutely um, and i mean the special effects in that are untouchable i mean when oh yeah when so, he's falling apart the the rotting friend is just so gross yeah. <laughs> It's uh, one of my favorites, uh, and many people's favorites, uh, for a reason. Yeah. No, I'm a fan. If you can pull it off, do it. Hell yeah. Uh, It does seem hard. I feel like you're sort of switching tones a lot. Probably the easiest thing to do is, like, when the movie is horror, but the characters have a sense of humor. Right. Like, they have a gallows sense of humor of what's happening. Yeah. Kind of your Evil Dead 2s. Yeah, yeah. Like, they know it's kind of wacky. Yeah. But it is, but but they're in a serious in the shit right. a lot of zombie movies are kind of like that I, Night, Night of the Living Dead is very earnest but like 28 days later the characters have a sense of playfulness even though they're in this like scary situation right yeah absolutely uh, they do Scream's another one that kind of functions both as a comedy and a horror and it's I think great at both it is a tough line to walk though for sure yep and a lot of times they, you know, a movie accidentally is funny in parts <laughs> because the special effects are so bad or so outrageous. So, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll never try, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's fun, fun to watch. So you mentioned that you didn't get into horror until later in life. I'm curious yeah. if there are any horror comics that you're into or maybe like a horror-leaning run that was something that you were into even before you were like officially into horror. Right, right. Well, when I was a kid, I definitely would dig up the old Tales from the Crypt comics and be like obsessed with those. And those were seriously gruesome, sort of nightmare-inducing stories, you know, people being buried alive and trapped forever in a, you know, movie projector or something. (laughs) And really fun, though. Yeah. So, yeah, I read those. I haven't read too many monster horror comic oh well you know i read um swamp thing is a comic book that i read uh, as a teenager when um alan moore the famous comic book writer first took over the the reins of swamp thing it sort of became famous because he was such a an effective writer and a lot of his stories are really scary yeah they're not always scary he does a does pretty wide range of stories in there but some of his are for real creepy with some real monsters. I mean, they go to hell at least twice in his run, and that, that's pretty scary. I always thought that so many of Spider-Man's villains get, like, just so obsessed with Peter that um, <laughs> they could really do, like, an interesting psychological thriller thing, playing up the paranoia oh, yeah. with, like, maybe Clone Saga or Craven's Last Hunt. Oh, yeah. Craven's Last Hunt is pretty scary. Yeah. So that's something that I would uh, I would be into seeing, for sure. But Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like most most superhero supervillain stories. It's particularly true of Spider Man, but probably any hero's rogues gallery seems weirdly obsessed with them. You know, like the Joker's obsessed with Batman, and Lex Luthor's obsessed with Superman. You know, yeah, helps the story. It'd be a bummer if they weren't interested at all. It'd be <laughs> kind of a boring villain. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, oh, uh, what was your name? I'm the again? Joker. I'll, I'll deal with Batman <laughs> if I run into him. I'm not really going to go out of my way. Yeah. <laughs> 
So the movie that we're talking about today, though, is Liam Gavin's 2016 debut, A Dark Song. Now, this movie is not nearly as well known as it should be. And so I'm curious if you remember how you came across it. Yes. My friend Katie Dippold is a screenwriter in Hollywood. She wrote The Heat and um, the controversial female Ghostbusters reboot and Snatched. And um, she used to be a writer for Parks and Rec. And she's a true blue horror fan, like obsessed and as she and I are on an improv team together, and she basically will go digging deep for horror movies, and will sometimes like host screenings, and she'll invite like you know friends over to watch it. And uh, this was one, and I'd never heard of it. She was just like right right when it came. I think it came out like it was not in the theaters long at all, and then it was sort of available like on iTunes, like for downloading or something, or maybe it was like did the festival route or something like that. Right, but like. It was on iTunes, and she's like, this thing's got good reviews. Let's check it out. She hadn't seen it. A group of us watched it, and I was just – and so it was just in, my, in her house, in my friend's house, and I was just really taken with it. I, it's one of those movies where I think it was kind of well-served that I honestly knew nothing about it, and I, I was really swept up in it, and the ending got me good, and we're going to ruin it now probably <laughs> on, this, on this podcast, but uh, – it was it was just a delight. I, I I can imagine it being overhyped. It's definitely an indie film where you know you can see the seams in certain places. Some parts are kind of slow, even though the movie's very short overall. I think it's less than ninety minutes. Um, yeah, something like that. it might it might have been like an hour forty, but it's it's okay. definitely not too long. Well, I only paid attention to eighty minutes of it, <laughs> but uh, let me see let me see exactly how long it is. Maybe maybe it maybe it was. Oh yeah, we watched it in 2017. That's when it got released into. Oh yeah, it's 100 minutes. Okay, not but not not too long. No. And um, we're gonna hype it too much. It's the best <laughs> horror movie ever made. But that that might do it a disservice because it, it might be better to remember this isn't any movie. It was made for not that much money. Yeah. It's it's lo-fi. With that in mind, it's really good. Yeah. Um, so that's how I, it got kind of brought to me. I, I didn't seek it out. Yeah, it was it was interesting that it, it kind of happened a, a similar way in that uh, someone was just like, "Hey, you should check this out" because it got brought up on one of uh, one of the episodes of this show, uh, just okay. in conversation. Someone was like, "Oh yeah, this is just another movie that I really liked," and then like two days later, you picked it for your episode, and then oh, thirty minutes later, someone else tried to pick it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so... It was really in the air. It was. It really was. And so I was very excited to watch it, and uh, luckily it did, in fact, live up to the expectations that I had, and it is the best horror movie ever made. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's great. And like you said, it is very low budget. It was. It started uh, as a student project, in fact. It was in 2011. Director Liam Gavin was still in college, and he had just seen this documentary on Aleister Crowley performing the Gnostic Abramelin operation. And this documentary, paired with a prompt from a teacher about a possible low-budget film idea, inspired Gavin because he said he knew that setting the movie in one location would help to keep the cost down, obviously. And in this documentary, Crowley was attempting a ritual over the course of a year to 18 months to manifest his guardian angel. And so over the next 24 hours, he threw together a treatment where he compressed the ritual into a shorter but still long period of time of eight months. And the teacher was interested. So they got to work on the actual first version of the script which came together in nine days of 12-hour writing sessions so wow short but uh very uh focused writing it seems like (laughs) now gavin had already been working with the samson production company on the still unmade project called written water which he is still trying to get made which and it had been kind of fluttering out even then 
So Maggie Mitchell, who worked at Samson, took a look at this new script and passed it along to her coworker, David Collins, who loved it. And he came on board as uh, as the lead producer. Okay. I didn't know any of this. <laughs> we get into it, man. We get into it. Yeah. They spent a year and a half uh, developing this initial draft. He said that the actual plot never really changed, but that they really took their time fleshing out the nuance and the character arcs of both of the, the two main people who uh, we focus on. Plus, they brought it up to about a 60,000-pound sterling uh, concept. That was where they were aiming for. Okay. Unfortunately, even after this year and a half, things were still really touch and go to the point where it wound up being around four years from the point where he initially wrote the treatment to actually filming. And a lot of this was because they had a tough time casting. People were dropping out right as they found the next person. So they'd be kept hanging on and get frustrated and drop out too and just kind of perpetuate this cycle. But luckily, they wound up with Catherine Walker and Steve Oram, who are just so good in this movie. And yeah, they're great. And it's, it's, it's crucial for them to be good because, like I said, it's kind of like a bottle movie. It's all, it all takes place in this one location. Yeah, it's mostly just them. Exactly. And if they're not believable and interesting, then the movie just falls apart. Yep. And when they finally got them on board, the rest of the pre-production started to run smoothly, which was a sign of good things to come because the actual shoot went smoothly as well, despite those pre-production issues. Even the weather in the UK countryside held out for a whole week so that they could shoot. No, oh, nice. Samson helped with funding the majority of the project through national film programs, partially from Wales and mostly Ireland. I liked this quote from Liam Gavin where he described himself as a walking co-production with Irish parents raising him in Wales. So he felt like he paid tribute to that by filming in Ireland and setting it in North Wales. Okay. Uh, so a nice little homage. Yeah. I like that story. And uh, he said that doing this was great and that he loves Irish film crews because you get the professionalism of the British plus a bonus pleasantness. And I thought that was... That's pretty funny as well. But he was he was committed to doing the best work possible on this debut. And this is still his first and only movie. Um, and he kept saying to the crew that statistically, you are most likely to make one film and that's it. So you got to leave it all in the field, baby. Yeah, interesting. And uh, I think that, that, you know, you can you can really see that. And this this feels like someone really taking their time and making sure that everything is very deliberate and, and really it feels very crafted. And it, this doesn't feel like a loose movie at all. Uh, no, it doesn't. The script especially feels very careful. Yeah. Each little step of the story seems to, like, add something interesting. Yeah, I was just really Im- impressed with it. It, it. it had that nice spare feeling I was talking about, like a lot of not a lot of moving parts, but things are heightening and very emotional and suspenseful the whole time. Yeah, I think that helps to create sort of a feeling of realness to it, That's that sparsity to it, because it doesn't feel like, oh, magicians with hats or anything. Like, this this feels like the realistic version of what something yeah. like this might be. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's great. Yeah, it feels like it, feels like it could happen in a, in a nice way. Yeah. So to get into the actual movie itself, uh, it opens up with Psalm 91, Uh, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Before transitioning to this beautiful landscape shot with a tiny little blue car zooming along the bottom. And it's so funny to me that it starts out with this really immense shot before we get just compressed into this house for the rest of the movie. It really creates that claustrophobia and that feeling of you being stuck in there with them. Yeah. We meet our main character, a woman named Sophia. She's brusquely taking a tour of a a rural Welsh home. Uh, She's interested in renting it immediately as is and privately. And 
we also meet, uh, she meets with and brings the grumpy Joseph Solomon, who we don't know exactly who he is yet. They're, they're just talking. And um, it's really interesting because they build this tension by keeping you hang on, by talking around the event. They don't really address it specifically right away. They talk about yeah. her diet and, and uh, abstaining from both sex and masturbation. You know, it, it's, it's interesting that they dole out these weird little tidbits so that you're like, oh, what the heck are they even going to do? Right. It's also an interesting name choice, of course, to call to mind King yeah. Solomon. Also, the, the name of the movie, A Dark Song, is intriguing. You're watching this and wondering, like, what is the dark song? What is what is happening? It turns out, I think that's the ritual, basically. Right. Yeah, but you you find out not, not too far to it that they're trying to do, like, a serious witch ritual. Yeah. And summon an angel and ask for a favor, basically, from the angel. And you find out that her um, son was killed. Yeah. Uh, actually, you don't, know, you don't know the circumstances at first. You know that her son has died, her seven-year-old son, and she misses him so much she wants to see him again. And she wants to basically ask an angel to let her talk to her boy. It's, like, very moving and sad when you, when you realize what pain she's in. Yeah, especially because... Not only does that build emotional stakes in, but we also sort of get to see this does play into what happens later because she initially does not tell him about her son. She says that she's doing this out of love, that it's unrequited love, and she wants the the favor is to force someone to love her back. Right. And he's like, I'm not going to help you with this. Like, this is such an extreme thing to do for for forced love you know he only has a 33 percent success rate uh of doing it the three times and she finally does reveal the truth that she wants to hear her son's voice again and she died and he tells her that it's not about what he thinks of her motivation it's about her being honest with herself and and what her drive is because without that that's gonna impede the ritual yeah and that obviously comes back into play, but in the moment, it does just feel like, oh, she didn't want to reveal this very personal thing to him and, and you know, didn't want to have to open up that can of worms and everything. It's, it's a lot of, like you said, a lot of the dialogue sets things up in a way that you don't realize right away and, and is just very well done at pulling double duty. There's, um, I think it's like high emotional stakes, like... Uh, unrequited love can't that can be high emotional stakes but then you find when you find out it's a dead child and then you also find out that the ritual is supposed to take months i think right and they can't leave the house and if they do it'll like muck it up or something and that they're that they might be trapped forever in some weird world if they try to leave the house spooky and like for a while it won't look like anything's happening like you're sort of wondering as you watch it is this a scam like is the twist of the movie going to be that Solomon is lying about a ritual and is he going to be some sort of weird killer or do something to her is she pulling some weird scam on him like you're kind of like sniffing around for a twist i do that in a lot of horror movies you know am i getting m night shyamalan here right. is uh they're going to be the is, is there going to be some big like reveal he's actually her son <laughs> Right, right. But then everything he's saying is checking out. It's like, no, you have to be honest. You have to be pure, you know. And they, so it's creepy. Then they set about it, and the ritual is all kinds of just, like, writing, in, you know, in inscriptions on the floor and, like, you know, weird diets and meditations and just, like, they, they put, like, a border around the house, right? Like, yeah, the a, they use circle. some white powder, yeah, to, like, enclose the property. 
The house is old, gothic, and creepy. Yeah. That's another thing is that a lot of it's not just that the script is very good. And I, you know, when we say that it's low budget, I don't want to give the impression that this movie does not look good because a lot of, yeah, it looks good. It does look good. The, the product, the set that they have, they got a nice Welsh mansion for the exteriors and then shot in Ireland for, uh, for the interiors. But like the camera choices are really nice in this exact moment. In fact, when we see Joseph, uh, Solomon agreeing to help undertake this ritual, we don't even actually hear it. We just get this great shot of looking at them through the windows of the train that he was supposed to be on. Um, just a really nice little thing to be like, yeah. uh, you understand exactly what they're saying without having to actually hear someone uh, exposition at you. <laughs> yes, I will help you with this. And yeah, like you said, it's going to be a grueling months long ritual. And it's supposed to summon her guardian angel who will facilitate the talking with her son. And he is also going to get a favor from the angel. I'm not, they never quite are like, I guess it's for helping her and getting her to that point. Once, once the angel's there, he's like, oh, I'm just giving out favors left and right. <laughs> I, th- I think he says that I give it when the angel appears, everyone's allowed to ask for a favor. Yeah. Everyone there has what you can ask for one boon. There you go. Who says no to that? And, uh, but, yeah. he, but he does say that it's going to be dangerous, that they are dealing with real, angels and demons it's not just a higher state or whatever that people you know sometimes think it is that this is very much a gnostic ritual in that they believe in a physical god not just like a spirituality or anything which i think is also pretty interesting it's nice and creepy i love it (laughs) yeah it sure is yeah it's uh and like you say it feels realistic and you like when you're a kid and you play with a ouija board with your friends part of you is kind of hoping that it's real Oh, what if we do unlock some like crazy magic thing? Yeah. Uh, and this is a movie where uh, what if that could happen? And what if there's a person who knows how to do it? And it turns out this guy does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting the way that it, it plays with you and that emotion. Because as the main character is like, nothing is happening. You're also like, oh, you're right. Nothing is happening. Like, this must all be bullshit. And then every time they're like, well you're not doing something right or, or like we need to, yeah. So it's, there's the suspense of waiting for the angels and demons to show up, but there's also just like, what's the scam. She's not telling the truth to him. Right. He lies to her sometimes too. Yeah. Yeah. He's manipulative and weird. Like they're, they're both broken people. It seems. Yeah. That's I think that that is also really interesting in that we see them bond occasionally, but like he's not like a good guy. <laughs> like he, now he's an angry, selfish guy. He tricks her into taking her clothes off so he can jerk off. Yeah, and he tells her that's part of the ritual, so she goes along with it. And then he says, "Nah, I just, I just wanted to do that." And then she pees in the food she makes for him the next day as revenge. That's right. That that ends up not having consequences beyond that, other than she just sort of is wary of him. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it's it's just kind of like a shift in their relationship. The real development is her being honest with her feelings. Right. And at some point late in the movie, she admits to him, okay, here's what happened. My boy was murdered. Was it, was it by other people trying to do a ritual? Yeah. Was it like people who did like a child sacrifice for some kind of magic stuff? Yeah, she said it was a bunch of teens dabbling with the occult. Murdered her child. And she's so filled with revenge. She wants revenge. She's going to ask the angel for vengeance. Right. That's the true thing. You can hear that maybe she was ashamed to admit that because it's not very noble. Maybe she was worried about gumming up the works of summoning an angel for sort of a, an, a 
evil reason or something or an angry reason. Yeah. And then he does a weird thing where he almost drowns her to like purify her. Yeah, she her they started the ritual with impure motivation, I guess, in terms of her lying, and so she had to have her soul reborn. Uh, and so he does a spell where he kills her and and yeah. then revives her. And uh, and he says, "You're back. New soul, fresh as a baby's bottom." And uh, yeah. I guess it works because <laughs> that's when things start going right. Yeah. But we do get to see her bitterness like in full force uh, very early on even you know she runs into her sister when she's out getting supplies and jeez the cat <laughs> yeah. the sister confronts her about not only the ritual because she knows that it's happening but also her time in a psychiatric hospital that she spent some time in after her son died and it's very obvious that Sophia feels abandoned by her sister and uh, that she has no other options and also jealous of the fact that her sister has two healthy children, she says, and yeah. that she has nothing, just a hole in her heart. And uh, she demands that she stay away. And I think that it's one of the few scenes we see that's not just those two people. And it's yeah. it's very impactful. Yes. We, we can see that Sophia is consumed by anger, but also we maybe are sympathetic to it, like the murder of a child. You can just imagine how that would wreck you yeah. completely. So after this, like, so to purify things after it's been revealed that Sophia's been lying. He drowns her in a bathtub and then revives her with CPR. He says he was doing that on purpose right. to rebirth her, but she's mad at him. Also, this is after he's jerked off right. for no reason other than just he wanted to jerk off you know, to her naked body. She stabs him. She gets a knife and just stabs him. She's had it. Yeah, well, I don't even... I think that it was more... It was like... like it's like an accident, right? Yeah, like she shoves him. And and uh, he again, he's like, oh, it's a sign that it's working. <laughs> right, she pushes him out of anger. He, fall, he falls in the knife, and he, but he gets pretty badly injured. Yeah, it goes right Yeah, through. but he's happy. He's like, that means things are happening. And then things do start to happen. Yeah. And this is like when the movie becomes truly scary. There's like noises in the house. There's <laughs> the voices. Sun. yeah. Uh, we start to hear the son's voice, but he's creepy. like, that's not really your son. That's a demon impersonating your son. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's great. I think that and we get we get into some full exorcist territory with like with like real dark forces in the house. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of rad. It really is. And, you know, there had been some like spooky, gross stuff like she had to drink his blood as part of the ritual. And yeah, she found like a maggot eaten dog like right before they got like trapped inside the house and everything. So yeah. there are these little, these little spooky moments, but you're totally right in that. This is really where things start to escalate in a really intense way. I was thinking about this moment afterward, and I thought it was kind of interesting that in order to call the guardian angel, there needed to right. be some kind of hurt towards Sophia that because Joseph did, he drowned her. And right. so this knife impalement is uh, the guardian angel interceding on her behalf to, to stab him. And so right. when he tells her that they need to like go through this hell, basically, to uh, have these demons come and, and fill the house and everything, that it's by getting this intense amount of pain and and anger and everything come at her uh, losing her finger ultimately and and being brought through this mental turmoil 
that that is what finally not only allows the angel to intercede, but to actually show up and and truly make itself known. And, and you know, it's the kind of thing where it could just be, oh, the knife was there set up precariously. But you do kind yeah. of you are kind of like, oh, maybe it was the guardian angel and he's not just like making this up the whole time. Like, like yeah. you do kind of think he might be the whole way through. Yeah, you're wondering if he's scamming it, but then these things really start to happen. Noises, demons, it's really scary, and then uh, our man dies. Yeah, yeah, it gets worse and worse. He gets an, he gets an infected wound there, and, uh, you know, he, he perishes, and she doesn't know what to do. She goes to look at his books, and everything is uh, crossed out. And yeah. I wonder if that was him or the demons, if that was like his last little vindictive act of revenge or what. It's uh, it's interesting that it happens, though. Yeah, I feel like it's the demons. I feel like it's the demons have, it's like, too bad you murdered this guy, and now we are going to assume control of the situation. You're trapped in this house by the salt circle, and you you are at our mercy, and we're going to toy with you. Yeah, and and that's exactly what they do. I mean... I think it's really interesting. You know, you talked about how they impersonate her son uh, as as the, the demons do that. And she is resisting. She is like, you're not real. But very quickly, she is like, I missed you. We're in a house in Wales. Like, she does still kind of lean into the make-believe yeah. of it just to get some kind of catharsis out of it. Yeah. Oh, it's so sad when she tells the demon voice she misses her misses him, the son. It's really sad. She tries to leave the house. She, like, breaks the rule. She, like, goes outside, crosses the circle, and then the road leads right back to the house. Like, she can't escape. It's a really great moment. I really like that. First of all, you know, it's easy enough when she walks out there and the car won't start to ascribe that to, like, oh, she's been – it's been sitting there for months. Like, dead battery. It happens. But yeah. when she walks down the road and, and, and it leads her right back and, and she's like, please, someone be there. Please, someone be there. And you see that it's the same house. That is really like a shocking moment for her yeah. and for us as an audience. Um, yeah, that the ma- magic is real. She, has, she, is, she is stuck here. Yeah. And, and, you know, we don't know how long that took, that, that passage or anything. But the house, just in the time from when she leaves to when she shows up again has visibly degraded. You know, there's handprints blackened on the walls. There's vomit on the floors. There's the photo of her son is there covered in vomit, which she does wash off. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awful. It's really awful. So you, I, I think we're, you know, at this point in the movie, I'm like, Oh, we are headed to a sad end. <laughs> our, our hero has, is filled with anger and vengeance and she's going to suffer for it. I thought it was going to be a real, like, drag me to hell situation where it's just, like, total sad ending. I don't it, know. I did. It does seem that way. It seems like everything has gone wrong that could go wrong. All of the the pillars holding up this ritual have fallen out. Um, and, and it feels like this is the end of it. And she is yep. tormented by these demons. Um, they're, like I said, pretending to be her son. In the morning, she's attacked by the woman clutching her sa- her son's hands, who's been appearing in her recurring dream for ages now, she says. Yeah. Um, and they they bring her to the basement and they torture her. And they, I mean, it's not, it's very dark, so you don't see a lot of it, which is... Yeah, it's like one of these, like, minimal gore films, but, like, these demons have dragged her to a chair, they're screaming, she feels physically trapped, they, they cut her finger off, I think. Right. 
yeah, that's the that's the one actual piece of violence that they visit on her. And true to what Joseph said, you know, this pain calls the guardian angel. And so there's a blinding white She also light. says she's sorry. Right. She kind of says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, I got in over my head. I didn't know what I was doing. Right. Yeah, she, she asked... Uh, she doesn't ask for forgiveness, but she does indicate her, her, her being sorry. And So the finger's cut off. She says she's sorry. And then, which totally surprised me, the angel arrives. Yeah. It, the ritual works. It was shocking. It really was. Um, um, the house is filled with a white light. The demons retreat. She walks up in the living room, and there in the living room is an enormous angel. What a moment, honestly. And I really loved it. Now, what did you think of that? I also because loved the, it. The, the group I saw it with was divided. I think it's great. I think... Uh, first of all, I like that it it would have been very easy, I feel like, for it to come off corny, but I think that she does a really good job of it, of sort of being awestruck and everything. Mm-hmm. I like one of the choices that they made I liked a lot, which is that the, when it, the angel talks, there's no actual sound, but the whole house like starts shaking. Yeah, it's got like this, the voice is so deep, it's almost like below human hearing. Yeah. So you hear like a low hum noise, but you can't make out what it it's saying. Right. I thought that it was it was cool. It was otherworldly. It fit into the demon was that the demons that we've saw have been human esque, and so that the angel feels that way felt within reason to me. And it's just this larger than life thing. Also, it, am I remembering it right? Was the angel wearing like armor, like a warrior yeah. angel sort? Yeah, it was cool. And it's the the effect when you watch the movie. It's, it's like, oh, it's here. Yeah. The angel, she can ask for whatever wish she wants. Right. And then it's like, what is she going to wish for? Yeah, this is uh, where we and, finally get the last the last great twist is that, you know, we're sitting there like, oh, is she actually going to go for it? Is she going to get the revenge? Is she going to just wish? It's going to be like, like a, is it going to be like a carry situation where suddenly she goes on a tear of vengeance against these teenagers? Right. Or. Maybe we won't see the vengeance, but we're going to imply that she gets it. It's great. And I think that it's really interesting that, again, sort of the dialogue setting things up. Earlier, they had talked about when she first reveals that she wanted vengeance. They talk about how the angel has the power to do much larger things than that. He's ta- he's like, he could do like transformations, stuff like that. Like he's going to ask to become invisible. <laughs> that's, his, right. that's his plan. Yeah. And so she winds up choosing sort of the path of light and something much less ethically and spiritually self-destructive in that she asks for the power to forgive. It really got me good when she said that. She's like sobbing as she says it. I want to forgive. I want to forgive. I want to forgive. Exactly. And, and you know, the whole way through, she's been like, I'm not doing the right of forgiveness. I don't do forgiveness. That's not something I'm interested in. And then for her to finally come to this point and understand that this is the real way to be able to move past uh, is, is I think a great moment. It definitely works for me. It caught me totally by surprise. It totally worked on me. It was like, Oh, this is how she's going to beat this. Exactly. And beat it. She does. We cut the angels gone. The demons are gone. She's able to get in a car and drive and it starts. She even uh, gives a nice little water burial for old Solomon there. She forgives him as well. She forgives Solomon and buries him properly and um, drives away. And it was like such a satisfying, happy ending, really. Yeah. I couldn't believe I was like totally affected by it. I was like, this is an extremely cool movie. 
Yeah, it doesn't feel like looking. it's going to go that way. It does feel like it's going to just continue to get darker and darker and darker. And for it to, to say, no, you know what? Well, we deserve a happy ending. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> She's earned yeah. it, I guess. Hell yeah. I, I think it's great. And now, Will, we've reached the part of the episode yeah. where we say why this is not just a good horror movie, but why it is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I know you said that this is possibly a detriment to it, but... I think it is, and so I'm going to ask you to sum up why uh, you feel it is as well. Okay, I think, well, its assets are that it's suspenseful. It's very simple, really. Just like dark ritual in a haunted house kind of is the vibe. Like a lot of great horror movies, it's a clear metaphor for a real emotional thing. Like her wrestling with these demons is her wrestling with her grief and her anger pretty nakedly. Yeah. And the only way she really defeats them is to let go of her anger and forgive. I mean, it's with this angel's help, but it if anybody's wrestled with any kind of issues with grief or loss, like this movie is follows that arc. It feels very emotionally truthful. Yeah. The way like sometimes like a horror movie can be like, I don't know, like zombie movies always feel very loosely like an analogy for loneliness of how you're alone. And like, it's kind of hard. It's hard to feel like you'll ever beat that. Yeah. And like sometimes like monster movies can just feel like, oh, man played God and tampered with science and created Godzilla, you know, yeah. or a corporation tried to monetize a thing and you get alien. You know, there's often like a moral thing going on beneath the horror. Right. It works well here. So I would say suspense, economy, and kind of like morally relatable make this a winner. I hell think. yeah. Hell yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is doing so much with so little. Uh, it is so stripped down, but the fact that they are able to not only have two incredible lead performances really carrying this thing through, but build genuine fear in terms of how far they're willing to go to make this happen and what they're going to do when the plan goes off the rails. You know, I genuinely had no idea what they were going to do when, when she, when he gets stabbed and he starts getting sick and everything, you know, I was in suspense the whole time. I think that they did an incredible job with it. And, uh, and like you said, it is very emotionally relatable. It is something that I think, Anyone can kind of tap into what she's going through. Whether, you know, you don't, I don't yeah. think you have to have had lost a child specifically. So yeah, to of, understand the appeal of revenge, to understand the appeal of like, I'm not doing the nice guy thing, I'm fighting back. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really a powerful motivation, and, uh, and they, they do so much with it. And to me, that's what makes this the best horror movie ever made. I agree. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this was so much fun. And please uh, tell people where they can find your own work, your books, all that jazz. I got a Twitter account, W-I-L-L-H-I-N-E-S. And I have an Instagram account, which is Willie B. Hines, W-I-L-L-I-E-B-H-I-N-E-S. And I plug all my stuff there. You can find my podcast out in the podcast world. I will write your book. I do a million things. You sure do. Th those are the best places to find me. Yeah, um, I encourage you to listen to Will's podcasts. They're great. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I always love to see a pop-up on another show as well. So uh, great Thank stuff you, there. George. And as far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. Uh, you can check out the Patreon if you're really enjoying the show. We have bonus episodes there. Uh, not just additional movie coverage, which we do, 
but also stuff like uh, Legal Thriller, which is uh, where I'm the movie judge, and we have movie arguments, and I settle those cases, baby, and, uh, you know, all kinds of fun stuff. <laughs> so so if you're enjoying the show, check that out. Um, for a couple bucks a month, you get a whole lot, and you get to support the show. So that's it, everyone. Uh, have a good one. Bye.